Thanks for joining us today at North Coast Church on this July 4th weekend. We hope you have an incredible time with family and friends. Pastor Larry Osborne has an amazing message in store for us today as we continue through the book of John in our Life or Death series. To prepare for the message, we encourage you to download the message notes on our website or by using our mobile app. There you can fill out a connection card, you can give online, or you can put in a prayer request. Without further ado, let's go to Pastor Larry Osborne. He was an old man when he took pen to parchment, and he began to write down the most important story of his life. Now he realized other people had told the same story, so he decided to highlight not the general story only, but some of the things that the others had left out. His name? Well, we call him the Apostle John. His book? We call that the Gospel of John, the book that we've been looking at for the last 25, 26 weeks or so. And God said, you know what, this is such an important book that I want to include it in the 66 books that we call God's library, and we call it the Bible. Now, now John had one primary purpose for writing it, because others had written the Jesus story before. And he tells us towards the end of his book, and let's take a look at it right now. It's in John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31, and we've seen it numerous times throughout this series. That Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. By that, he doesn't mean the Bible. He means his book, John's Gospel. But these, the ones he chose, are written so that, number one, we might believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the Old Testament pointed to, that deliverer that that after Moses had delivered the children of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, God was going to send a greater deliverer who was going to not only deliver them in this life, but throughout eternity. Also, number two, that he is the Son of God, God in the flesh, And number three, that by believing you may have life in his name. So he is telling us in this book that there are a lot of things that that have been done. But number one, Jesus is this promised Messiah. Number two, he is God in the flesh. And number three, only through him will we be able to have eternal life. And so he talks about Jesus' claims of that. He starts out right in the very beginning of the book. Uh, with Jesus' role in creation as part of the triune or what we call the Trinity, the triune God. He he only uh, deals with seven miracles in his book, but there are seven miracles that only God could do. And over and over and over, he highlights Jesus' constant claims that he is not just the Messiah, that he is God in the flesh and the Savior and the only way to reach eternal life and have our sins forgiven. Now, John also explains in this book why many people believed and followed Jesus and many others, especially the religious leaders, rejected him. And, and, and frankly, uh, he points out what we see in life today. When the truth is inconvenient or following is going to be too costly, we often find ways to ignore it or squash it. And that's exactly what the religious leaders did. And we've been seeing this pattern throughout our study of the book of John. Uh, early on when he healed a man with a, a shriveled hand, uh, he did it on the Sabbath. So they rejected him because he broke their traditions and their ideas of what a, a rabbi or a prophet 
prophet or religious person would do. Later on, when the healings piled up, the blind, the deaf, the mute, they, they no longer could explain it away like at a miracle here or there. So they decided, you know what? Our explanation of this is he's demonic. He's doing it in the power of Beelzebub, the great demon. And when he fed thousands, they didn't know what to do with that. So they said, well, we just want one more sign. So they just were constantly pushing back every time the truth was placed in front of them. And so today we're going to pick up the story right after Jesus had performed what is kind of the ultimate proof that all of his claims about who he is and what he does for us and being the only way are absolutely true. As Pastor Trent walked us through last weekend, it's the raising of his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the tomb four days. By that point, the body's deteriorating. Uh, you know, as the old King James said, when they objected, uh, when he said, hey, uh, roll away the stone, they said, he stinketh. Uh, and Jesus intentionally waited a couple of days so that there was no question. This wasn't resuscitation. This was bringing back somebody absolutely from the dead. That's why I call it, next to his own resurrection, the ultimate proof that his claims were true. And if you've ever thought or heard someone say, well, if only God would do this, if only God would, then I would believe. Well, the day's passage puts to bed that idea completely because it's simply not true. So if you've got a digital device or a Bible in front of you right now, I want to uh, uh, have you turn to John chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 45 through the first 11 verses of chapter uh, 12 where we get the rest of the story after Lazarus has been raised from the dead and everybody's mind is, is blown. So we pick it up now in verse 45. Therefore, duh, because we're raising someone from the dead after four days in the tomb, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary to sympathize with Mary and Martha and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But... Some of them went to the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and told them what Jesus had done. Now, not necessarily to get Jesus in trouble. We kind of assume that, but we don't really know. Uh, maybe they had gone and, and said, listen, let us tell you what has been done. This is not just a rabbi. This is not just another prophet. This is a promised Messiah. But verse 47 tells us this. When they came and told them, then the chief priest and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin, the 70 spiritual leaders and the high priest, a total of 71 people who had governmental control of the nation and Jerusalem and the temple. What are we accomplishing, these religious leaders asked. Here is this man performing many signs. Notice, they didn't question whether the signs were done or not anymore. If we let him go on like this, everyone's going to believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. You see, the Roman government had conquered them, but had given them some form of religious freedom, and so they're sitting around saying, listen, this guy, is, is, as, as more and more people are following him, we're afraid the Roman government is going to come and take away this place, our temple, and when they do that, we will no longer have our nation or our role. And then one of them, named Caiaphas in verse 49, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You guys don't know anything at all, he said. You do not realize that it's better for you that one man die for the people 
than that the whole nation perish. In other words, we, you guys just don't get it. We need to kill him. We need to destroy him. It's better than one, that one innocent person dies than the, than the whole nation and our, our temple be destroyed and, and we be shut down. And, and, and by the way, this is not only for our people, but we're going to lose all that we have as well. Now, verse 51 tells us a little what's going on behind the scenes of the spiritual realm. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die, one man, for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, we call them Gentiles, to bring them together and to make them one, all of God's people, having their way paved to God, no longer being rebels, but becoming sons and daughters of the king, open to all mankind. One man's going to die so that that happens. Now, notice verse 53. You might want to circle and highlight that first word, so. Because of what Caiaphas has said, because of the crowds coming to follow Jesus, from that day on, they not only criticized him, they not only tried to cancel him, but from that day on, they plotted how to kill him. They plotted to take his life. Now, because of that, therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judah. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And then when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, a few days before, all this is happening in the last weeks and months of Jesus' life, but a few days before the Passover, the Passover on which he is going to be crucified, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. So the Passover took uh, place on one day, but before that, uh, uh, devout Jews would go to Jerusalem and go through a series of ceremonial cleansings. It could be anything from shaving, uh, uh, special bathing. Uh, It could involve a little bit of fasting. It could take as long as a week uh, to simply one day. But before the Passover, when all the Jews were supposed to have gone to Jerusalem and the temple, they'd go to get prepared for it. Well, as they were there a few days early, they kept looking for Jesus as they stood in the temple courts and they were asking one another, what do you think? Uh, Isn't he going to come to the festival at all? What's up with that? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they may arrest him and, of course, then have him killed. Now we move into chapter 12, and it's just six days before Jesus is going to die in the Passover. Six days before the Passover, just a couple of days past what we just read, Jesus came to uh, Bethany where Lazarus lived, the man that he, as we saw last weekend, had raised from the dead. Where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And, and uh, here, a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. <laughs> you know, like, that makes a whole lot of sense, right? You just raise this prominent uh, person, this good friend. Let's throw a party for the guy who pulled this one off. And as that party is being done, we're told that Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with Jesus. And then Mary, Lazarus, and, and Martha's sister took about a pint of pure nard and a very expensive perfume. We're going to see it uh, about a year's wages of a regular worker. And she poured it onto Jesus' feet and then did something a Jewish woman would not do in public. She let her hair down and on his feet. Remember, this was an era of sandals and the lowest servant would be the one who would wash the feet of the guests when they came in. 
with her hair, she wiped his feet. And the house was filled with the fragrance of that perfume. Well, one of his disciples, we're told, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Well, he didn't say this, we're told, because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money or treasurer of the group, I mean, he looked pretty good on the outside. You don't make the loser among you the treasure. And uh, that was the role he had. And later on, it was discovered, and John is telling us, that he used to keep to himself uh, what was put into it. So here's the thing to note in this. It's not just Judas who objected. Uh, Matthew's account of this in chapter 26 tells us that others thought the same thing. Hey, couldn't this have been uh, given to the poor and the needy, something Jesus and, and, and the group of people Jesus was always ministering to? little sidebar here. One of the things I've noticed through all my years of ministry is this. The people who often uh, get most upset about something that's done extravagantly for God are also the people, when you look closely, who tend to give the less of their own towards God. And that's exactly what is happening here. The guy who's pilfering everything is complaining about Jesus receiving this kind of honor, and they have always got other uses for it. Well, what does Jesus say? Verse 7, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. See, no one would object at a funeral when very expensive perfume like this was placed on a body that was going to quickly deteriorate. But in this setting, they didn't know it. But Jesus knew what was coming. For you will always have the poor among you. You'll not always have me. And meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there, and they came, not only because of him, but they also wanted to see the headline news. They also wanted to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. You can imagine what a, a, a specimen Lazarus would have been in the eyes of, you know, kind of a freak show, if you will. And so everybody wanted to see not just Jesus, who they'd heard about and were talking about, but, but let me see Lazarus with my own eyes. So, once again, circle and highlight. Because the crowd was coming, not just to Jesus, but to see Lazarus, the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews, fellow, their fellow Jews, were going over to Jesus and believing in him. And that's what hard hearts do. They not only refuse to accept the truth, as we talked about earlier, refuse to believe, they also seek to destroy the evidence. So let me sum up this passage now with a kind of an obvious thing, but give you something to jot down and a, a couple of benchmarks to go back to. Because what we see in this passage are two responses, the two responses that show up over and over and over still to this day when presented with Jesus, which is why we've called this series Life or Death, because that's what John calls us to. There is a decision we have to make, and one side will bring life and the other will bring death. Well, the two responses, the first one is this, many believed Many believed this must be the Messiah. We need to follow him. So much so, by the way, that the passage we're going to see next week is known as the triumphal entry. It's what takes place on Palm Sunday, where they line the streets, lay down palm fronds, and they, they, cry, they cry out, uh, uh, save now, save now, and they declare him as king, and the whole city is uh, in a bit of an uproar. They believed. And by the way, Little sidebar here, 
That's why Jesus did his miracles. Remember we saw that in John? I've written these things and I've told you about all of this so that you might believe that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and the source of life. You see, this is very important to understand. Jesus let lots of people go who had very significant and real needs. He didn't heal everybody he came across because his goal was not to fix our earthly problem. His goal was to fix our eternal problem. And so, therefore, there were a lot of people he didn't heal. And we're told exactly why uh, these two passages are on your note sheet, but why Jesus did his miracles. Not because every need has to be taken care of earthly, but the big need has to be taken care of. Here's what it says. John 10, 25, the works I do in my father's name testify about me. I'm doing these things to verify that all of my claims are absolutely true. Number two, John chapter 10, verses 37 to 38. Do not believe me unless I do the works of my father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, my words, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. The reason this is important is because we can get confused sometimes like, why did Jesus do this and why didn't he do that? And we do the same thing with our prayers today. Well, why did somebody get a miraculous healing over here and somebody get a nice funeral? Uh, why was this taken care of and not that taken care of? Because we often turn Jesus into our magic genie who's supposed to fix all of our problems now as if somehow this is eternity. And the Bible is crystal clear from the beginning. What matters most is not now. What matters most is eternity. And Jesus' miracles blessed people left and right, but they didn't bless everybody because that wasn't his purpose. His purpose was to fix our greatest problem, and that is our separation from God because of the high-handed sin that each and every one of us have chosen to do and the fact that we're we're just born ever since Adam and Eve. We're born as sinners separated from God, a problem he came to fix. Now, the second response is this. Many refuse to believe. And I want to highlight that word. They refused to believe. As I pointed out when we were walking our way through the passage, they didn't deny that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead. In fact, they no longer were denying that he had done lots of signs and wonders. They just chose to ignore the obvious conclusion. What are we accomplishing? Here this man is performing many signs, but we don't like what those signs would mean. So we're going to choose not to believe. And I want to show you how that, that kind of continues today. Because uh, uh, it raises an obvious question, at least in my mind when I read passages like this. How can this be? How, how, how in the world could they have ignored such obvious signs and evidence? Well, the same way we do today. But when I look at it, I'm going, man, if Jesus raised somebody from the dead, my buddy right in front of me or somebody I knew and I could actually go to the freak show and, and see the person and there's absolute proof of it, I'd go, I believe. But you know what? I, I'm not sure I would. Because as Jesus said, you know, sign after sign after sign is not the thing that we need. Because the truth is, we have to have an openness to the truth, or we can just sh shut it out. And if we're in a zone where we go, give me more, give me more, give me more, God, Jesus' answer is simply, I gave you all you needed. 
In fact, in his resurrection, he actually told those who wanted a sign. He said, the only sign that's given to you is the sign of Jonah, who was three days in the fish. I'm going to be three days in the tomb, and when I come out, what more do you want? And guess what? That still wasn't enough. So let's kind of try to step back practically and answer the question of how this can be. And we're going to talk about it in terms of spiritually, how in the world is it that we can choose to ignore the obvious not just how they did, but how we do. And let's take a look at it psychologically as well. Those who research these things and, and try to figure out why are people are so slow to change their mind politically, so uh, slow to change their mind in, in their value systems, in their, their beliefs about science, you name what, whatever it would be, and of course spiritual as well. So let's talk about spiritually. Number one, the fact is sometimes we fear the truth. Sometimes we, we just don't want to know it because we're afraid of the consequences. Have you ever known, or it might be you, uh, someone who doesn't want to go to the doctor? In fact, they're kind of, well, I never go to the doctor. Well, often the real reason behind I never go to the doctor is I'm afraid of what the doctor might tell me. And so uh, I've got this idea that ignorance is bliss. If I don't know that I have cancer, if I don't know the cause of this bleeding or something that's happening in my life, if I just pretend it doesn't exist, that ignorance will be just fine. Or spiritually, I don't want to research this stuff because I might have to change, so I'll just ignore it, and that'll be a, not only fix the problem because I don't know about it, but it'll be a good excuse before God. <laughs> I always like to tell people, try that with a cop. You know, well, I, I didn't know the sign said the speed limit or I, 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 I didn't see that stop sign. So I went right through it. And so my ignorance makes everything OK. No, it doesn't. It not only doesn't in authority, it doesn't in the real world. If I take the wrong medication because I'm ignorant that it's a wrong medication or it's mislabeled or whatever reason it would be. The fact that I think everything is okay doesn't make everything okay. The wrong medication can kill me even when I have the best of intentions and an absolutely open heart. So sometimes what we do is we just decide, you know what? No knowledge is better than bad knowledge. Now here's the second thing we sometimes do. Sometimes we simply don't want to change. It's very similar, but, but there are certain things we don't want to know because we know specifically something would have to change. There's an old fable about a, uh, a town in Turkey where they have major, major fault lines and major earthquakes. And the story is told that uh, uh, in this particular town, the fault lines were mapped, but the city fathers didn't like where the fault lines were in light of some of their buildings, a few government buildings and homes and all that. So what they did is they took the maps and they changed the fault lines. And when I heard that story, which, by the way, I spent a lot of time this week trying to find out where to come from, and that's why I call it a fable. It was a great illustration someone used, but wasn't true. So just telling you, it's a fable. But it's kind of how we live sometimes, isn't it? That, well, I, I really don't like this, so I move the fault line. And then when the earthquake comes, I go, what's up with that? Well, the fault line was always right there. And we can do that. Here's a little phrase you might want to write down. Because let's be honest, lots of times we prefer to interpret the Bible in light of our behavior instead of changing our behavior in light of the Bible. I've come across that all kinds of times. 
And if I'm honest, there's been times in my own walk with Jesus where I've kind of looked for somebody, some Bible teacher or something, search the internet. There's got to be some expert who agrees and says what I'm doing is really okay, even though this Bible verse over here doesn't say it. And, and, and there's tons of that going on right now because thanks to uh, uh, the, the internet and the access that we have to information, whatever it is you're doing, you can find somebody who will come along and explain to you why the Bible doesn't really mean what it says in this particular passage. Now, mindless the fact that, no, the Bible says that. It says it quite clearly. You can always find somebody who says, well, the Greek word here or the Hebrew word here or when you put it all together. And that's kind of what the religious leaders were doing. Moses and and the Old Testament Bible had 613 laws. They were quite clear. But they had made book after book after book of interpretation of those laws. Many more than God had ever come up with. And over time, God's law had morphed into something that had nothing to do with God's law because they were quoting rabbi after rabbi and expert after expert. If you look hard enough, you can find ways that what God says, he doesn't really say. And that's what they did with Jesus. They looked hard enough to say, well, we've decided the Messiah would never heal on the Sabbath. There was nothing in the Bible that said that. But there were a lot in their books that said that. And over and over they found excuses because they flat out didn't want to change. And then there's another similar one spiritually, which is this, number three. Sometimes we just flat out love the darkness. What was Judas' issue? Well, he didn't want to lose his money train. In fact, most scholars believe that it was after this that he went and made the deal to sail and betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. He loved the darkness, and the light exposes stuff. John puts it this way, everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Now let me flesh this out a little bit. You know, I'm glad that we have a right to privacy. I want to be crystal clear on that. Let's put a spotlight on it, underline it. I'm glad we have a right to privacy. But what I find very interesting is the more I'm doing things I don't want people to know about, the more that I push, well, that's none of your business. I have a right to privacy. I, uh, and when it comes to spiritual living, I, I encourage people to do what I call glasshouse living. You know, there's this thing called accountability groups or whatever. You ever been in one? I've been in some before. I found they didn't work because you'd ask people hard questions, hold each other accountable, and somebody just look you in the eye and lie. What Nance and I have found for our own life is let's, let's try to have glass house living. Let's invite people into our life. Let's invite people into our home. Let's people see how we live and what we do because we all live a little better when mom's watching. And when I know the glass house and I'm not hiding behind some sense of privacy where no one knows anything that I'm ever doing, the temptations are way less. And what John is saying here and what the religious leaders were doing and what Judas was doing was he said, listen, I don't want any light shined on what I'm doing. Why? Because I won't be comfortable with you knowing what I'm doing. 
But when you've got nothing to hide and the light is shining, just wave at it. Hey, here I am. <laughs> you know, you're, you're, a, you're a criminal and one of those uh, helicopters is flying up above you. And uh, they've got that spotlight down. Every now and then in our neighborhood, we'll hear that. And you'll hear over the speaker something you can't understand, but I think they're warning us what's there. Too bad I can't understand it. But uh, I want to tell you, when that light is shining in the night, I go out there, I could wave at it. I have nothing to fear. But if I'm the bad guy that's been busted in a few homes, I'm doing everything I can to hide from that light. So let's be honest. Sin can be incredibly rewarding and satisfying for a season. And when that's what's going on, we don't want anything that tells us hard truth about it. If I'm enjoying sugared poison, I don't want you to present to me a study why that sugared poison is not good for me. I'll just keep drinking it left and right. Now, the other thing is psychologically, there's some reasons that we do this and they explain then and they explain now. One is called confirmation bias. You may have heard of it. It's our tendency to seek out information that confirms our existing behavior, existing beliefs and values and to disregard anything or downplay anything that has contradictory information. Well, you can see it all over in our world recently in all kinds of cultural areas and scientific areas and disagreements that people have, but I don't want to wade into that. I'll just show you one from history we all would agree on. A guy named Galileo. He said, listen, we're not stuck here with the sun going like this. We're going around the sun. This is how the solar system works. But people had had these ideas about us being the center of everything and all of that, and they, they just didn't want to be confused with his evidence. It was a, a, a little like there's, there's an old saying, you know, uh, believe me, don't believe your eyes, believe me. And that, that's what people did over and over because they had an idea which carried out into ways they were living and things they were doing, and so they shut down the obvious right in front of them. There's another one that can hold you and I back from following Jesus. Either stepping over the line and becoming a follower of Jesus or obeying him in some area. And it's uh, peer pressure. Remember the story of the emperor's fine clothing? Everybody's standing there looking around and the guy's butt naked, but they're all going, wow, it's beautiful. Well, oh yeah, it's beautiful. And everybody's in their head going, I think he's naked, but they're all, see whatever. We do that. In fact, there have been studies shown where they will uh, 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 gather a subject in for this test, and, and this person thinks that everybody else in the room is just like them, a part of it, but they're actually plants. And then they'll, they'll, they'll put up on a board something where, where there'll be a line, and then there'll be another line that clearly, not ridiculously longer, but clearly, clearly is a longer line, and they'll ask people to point out whether A or B is a shorter line. And so all of the plants will say, well, B, B, B. And then they come to the uh, person who's not a plant in the room, and more often than not, guess what? They'll ignore their eyes, and they'll say, well, B is a shorter one. Because instead of trusting what is obvious right in front of us, we can turn around and go, well, what's everybody that we respect, everybody we think? What's, what's kind of the whole cultural's view, culture's view of this particular subject or action? And we follow it. And then there's third, what is called identity protection. I tend to rule out anything that threatens my worldview or my autonomy, my freedom. That's what they did. 
They didn't want anything that was going to cut into their worldview, their autonomy, their success, their power, their preferences, their prestige. Here's how we do it today. We trust our feelings and conscience as if they are somehow reliable. Well, if I feel good about it, it must be good. If my conscience is clear, God must be good with it. And, and, and we treat our feelings and our conscience, which are shaped by peer pressure and all these other things, we treat them as if they are reliable standards. They aren't. Do you know the difference between a thermostat and a thermometer? The thermostat is what I have in my house, and I set it to the temperature that I think is comfortable. The thermometer tells me what the temperature actually is. Now, here's what I want you to understand. God's word is a thermometer that tells me what is sin and what is not sin, what is true and what is not true. My conscience, my feelings, that's my thermostat. So when my conscience is, is kind of bothered a little bit, it doesn't mean God is bothered. Uh, it means I'm not living to my standard. And my standard might be higher than God. I'm a legalist. It might be way lower than God has said. And I'm living with license. But we live in a day and age where we decide we're the measure of what's true by what we feel good about, by what everybody else seems to say, and by what we have peace about. And that's exactly what those religious leaders did. If you had known any of them personally, they were so committed to honoring God. But they didn't honor God. They became the enemies of God. And it happens slowly. When we start listening to our conscience, we start listening to our feelings as if that's the ultimate authority rather than realizing it's a thermostat that as we get information, we turn up or we turn down. Our hearts can get hardened. Our hearts can get calloused. It's something I've called before the dimmer switch. It's found in the Bible that the path of the righteous is like the rising of the noonday sun. We walk in righteousness, we get cl greater clarity. And in Romans chapter 1, it talks about a culture going downward and becoming spiritually darker and darker as it ignores the light that God has given him. Obey the light you have, you get more. Disobey the light you have, you get less. We see it in these guys, these religious leaders. Originally, Initially, they rejected Jesus' teaching because he didn't have the proper credentials. Then they rejected his miracles because they didn't fit their idea of what a prophet would actually do. Then they got so hard-hearted, they rejected the blindingly obvious. They were all willing to say, he does many signs. He even raises people from the dead, and we got to kill the dead guy he raised because they feared losing their status and power. And finally, as their hearts got harder and harder, they decided to kill Jesus and Lazarus so that they wouldn't lose from the government at that point the power, the prestige, and the temple that they had. I just want to warn us, this isn't a passage, and these aren't explanations about them. They were put in there so we could see ourselves. And the same thing can be happening. So let me tie this all together with this simple thought. How, if, if, if some, many are going to believe and, and, and others are going to refuse to believe once they actually have truth, obviously a bunch of people don't believe because they haven't heard yet. But, but what about those who refuse? How should we respond to those 
who refuse to respond, who don't respond. I want to give you three things as take-homes today. Number one, we need to respond to those who at this point in time are refusing to accept the truth that's blindingly obvious in your mind and my mind in front of them with hope and patience. With hope and patience. We need to hope for the very best and we need to never write off anyone while they are still breathing. Hope for the very best. Don't lock people into what they are today because the story's not over. And never, ever write somebody off until the last breath is, believed, is, is breathed. A couple of examples. A guy we know as Paul the Apostle wrote so much of the New Testament. Is the great, outside of Jesus, the, the, the great spiritual influence of the New Testament era. Well, if you and I could be transported back in time when the early church first began, we would have seen him as the arch enemy of the church, Christians, and Jesus. He was an absolute blasphemer. He was a, a persecutor and actually at times part of the murder of people for the simple reason they proclaimed that Jesus was alive and well. You can't get much worse than that. But guess what? God didn't write him off. God came to die for every one of us. His, in fact, the Bible says, while well, we were his enemies, and that includes his greatest enemies. And so if Jesus died for his greatest enemies, I'm not going to write them off until they breathe that last breath. I want to be a, a man with hope and with patience. By the way, there's another one. We'll see him a little bit later as we go through John. His name's Joseph of Arimathea. He's the guy whose tomb Jesus was buried in. Here's what you need to know. Remember the Sanhedrin that got together and decided, we got to kill Jesus for the sake of the nation? He wasn't just part of that group of 70. He was a prominent member of that group of 70. And they're all talking about, we've got to kill Jesus. We've got to do this and that. And he and another man named Nicodemus, some of you might recognize his name from early in John's story. Both of them were members of this group. And we're going to be told later on, they laid low in the weeds because they were petrified that if people found out, they thought, no, I think Jesus is a Messiah, that they might be killed or turned on. Well, that's about the biggest loser I can ever imagine. You claim to believe that Jesus is Messiah and you're laying low in the weeds while all this is happening? Yep. But if I look at him with hope and patience, I realize there's more to the story. And before the story is all over, this guy who's doing that is going to step forward and say, Jesus' body, this body of a criminal in the Roman's mind, on a cross, I, he's my man. I want him put into my tomb. Which Can you imagine what that does with the Roman government? I want you to put him in my tomb. And because of that, three days later, later Jesus walked out. You know, if there was no Joseph of Arimathea, you know what they did with the crucified body? They threw it in the garbage heap. Six to 12, 24 hours later, there's no body, there's no Easter. Who would have ever guessed? When you find someone who refuses to believe, you find someone who even is an enemy of the cross. Live with hope and live with patience because that's what God has given us and that's what he asks us to give others. Now, another real practical thing is this. Move on to those who are open. 
move on to those that are open. The Apostle Peter in, in uh, uh, the first letter we have uh, in our Bible called 1 Peter, in chapter 3, verse 15, he says, always be ready, don't give an answer, ready to give an answer to those who ask you a reason for the hope and confidence that you have. Notice this, answer those who ask, and the Bible would teach us avoid those who argue. One of the biggest mistakes we can make is to get in their spiritual argument. It will go nowhere. If somebody's refusing to believe, you can have the best point. You, 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 you can have all the answers to everything they say. You can parade a dude that was dead for four days. It won't do any good. It won't do any good at all. Because a failure to believe is a choice. And so what we're looking for is openness in the heart. Move on to those who are open. Jesus sent out a couple of times kind of an advanced crew uh, as he was uh, going place to place. One time he sent out his 12 apostles, another time 72 of his followers. And each time he gave them instruction as they went ahead of him as this advanced team, if you will, where they were going to proclaim the good news, the kingdom was coming, where he gave them some power to pray over and see people even healed. <coughs> Here's what he told them. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words... Leave that Homer town and shake the dust off your feet. He didn't say stay there. He didn't say get a bullhorn. And to us, he's telling us today, don't nag, don't pester, don't conjole. Certainly don't send links to North Coast sermons. Just move on. But as you're moving on, you're not writing out them off because you're moving on with hope and patience, waiting to see what God is going to do. Just as God works in our life, he works in other people's life. And the last one is this. Pray for an open heart and don't look for a magic bullet. We gotta stop looking for a magic bullet. It's not there. I mean, if there was ever gonna be a magic bullet, it's a guy who's been four days in the tomb. Doesn't work. Our job is to cast the seed through our, our, our words and our actions to bring glory to God, to be ready to answer when asked, or to say to people, well, why don't you just come and see with me? But it's not the seed, and it's not the way we cast it that makes a difference. It's the soil it lands on. The soil is what determines the outcome. You might read later this week, uh, Matthew chapter 13, the story's told in Mark as well, but Matthew chapter 13, the first 23 verses, is a parable called the parable of the four soils. And Jesus talks about a guy casting seed, and some of the seed lands on the roadway, and it's absolutely hard packed. And he says the birds just come and, and, and eat the seed. It never germinates, nothing happens. Is the problem with seed? No. Problem with sower? No. The problem is where it landed. And then he says there's some other seed, and it springs up right away, but it's very shallow. It's got a little bit of, of, of dirt, and then underneath it is, is like solid rock. And, and actually, those seeds will germinate quicker because of the, uh, the warmth of the soil not being very deep. But when the summer heat comes, and you got to realize where Jesus was in the Middle East, it gets hot quick, they'll wither away like that. Is it the seed? No, it's the soil. Then he talks about other seed that sprouts up, looks really good for a while, but the soil is full of weeds and they choke off the wheat before it bears any fruit. And then he talks about fertile land where the seed is planted and it not only sprouts up, but it, it gives other seed as well. He says, that's how it is. 
you got to remember this. The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The same sun. The sun hasn't changed, but the thing in front of it has. If it's wax, it's going to melt. If it's clay, it's going to harden. That's true with our own hearts. That's true with everybody we want to have an influence with. If my heart is like clay, my heart is filled with weeds, my heart is a shallow walk with Jesus, then it's not going to stick. People I'm trying to reach, it's the same thing. Your job and my job is to stay open to God's truth so that we can begin the process of our next step of obedience, which is always there. And when we deal with other people to realize what is their next step of obedience. I've put it up before and I want to put it up again as a, as a reminder. The spiritual journey kind of goes like this. Uh, let's say zero is that point where right here in the middle you're, you're just absolutely neutral towards Jesus and God. There are people who are minus three, people who are minus two, people who are minus one. There's the neutral. There's a plus one. There's a plus two. There's a plus three. You're the Apostle Paul and you're writing Bible. Remember, we already said at one point he was down here. He was minus three. Your job and my job is not to write people off because, well, you're minus three today. You're a huge enemy of Christianity in our culture or our world or whatever. No, we're to pray for them. We're not to look for the magic bullet to show up and boom, here's our Lazarus. It won't work. We pray and we are hopeful that they might move from all Christians are terrible idiots. We need to silence to, well, a few of them are okay, to, well, I'm not so sure. And when we get here, who knows what God will do? This, this, or that. The rest of the story after Lazarus' resurrection, it's our story as well. It's the story of our culture. It's the story of our choices. Many believe, and many others refuse to believe. It wasn't the miracle. It wasn't even Jesus. It was the soil, the message, and the truth landed on. And here's my prayer, that we will be men and women who are constantly tilling and making the soil of our own heart open to the truth that God will give. That we walk the path of the righteous where it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And as we deal with other people, we will realize God's not finished until they're finished. And that our work will be the work of Jesus. Loving to see is there some way to move them down the path. Father, would you take the things that we have seen in this passage, in this story, and we don't want to just look at a bunch of religious leaders from thousands of years ago. We want to look at the mirror of our own heart. And Lord, it's just mind-boggling to me that, that some who were part of those who refused to follow and look so, so jacked up ended up being bold and courageous and stepping forward. Lord, that's what we pray for those we know and those we love. And we also pray that we will not be like the ones we're going to see next weekend who got all excited about you, but the moment there was any cost to it, realized that's not what they wanted. May we move to plus one, plus two, plus three for your glory, our fame, which is always for our benefit. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Thanks for joining us today. And if you'd like to be able to receive our bonus Monday material, it's an extra point from our speaker. Simply subscribe to our Daily Dose devotional sent to your phone each and every morning. To subscribe, simply text the keyword DAILY to 844-921-0220. That's the keyword DAILY to 844-921-0220. Thanks for joining us here at North Coast Church, and we look forward to having you back next week.